You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity Morning, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. It is Saturday, August 28, 2021, and we are broadcasting live online on WVNN in the Decatur Athens, uh, Huntsville, Decatur Athens listening area from Huntsville, Alabama in the Spice Radio Studios. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, August 29th. 2021 on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama, and Wednesday on 102.3 WHIV in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today we have uh, wiped the table clear. We've uh, we've set everything else aside, and we are going to be building on last month's Unions 101 episode with Connor Lewis. So we are very excited about that. Uh, he is joining us from Pennsylvania this morning, and uh, and we're going to be taking your calls. This is the Alabama AFL CIO Open Line Saturday. The phone number is one eight six six. Four nine four nine eight six six. So while we are building on last month's, uh, uh, while we're building on last month's unions one hundred one, this is going to be a unions one hundred two, so to speak. If you have any questions, feel free to call in or leave us a leave us a chat in the YouTube, um, and uh, we'll try to get it answered for you. We'll try to get that answered for you, uh, and so. Uh, really quickly, though, if you want to see what we're up to throughout the week and get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Valley Labor Report. We are on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore AL. Uh, and if you miss part of the show and watch it, want to watch it later, you can go to YouTube at uh, uh, the Valley Labor Report. We also upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps, so you can find us on your listening platform of choice at thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. We have a website where you can buy our hats and stickers. Somebody accidentally bought too many, so we thought we were out, but we've got two more that were returned. So if you still want a hat, we've got two more left. That is thevalleylaborreport.org. And the best way that you can support the show is by throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash the valley labor report. 
All right. So, everybody, uh, welcome to the show. Connor, thanks for joining us again this month. We uh, we really enjoyed talking to you last month. I think it went over incredibly well. I think that it was very well received. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, I think that doing this kind of union basics, this education type stuff is incredibly important because a lot of folks, you know, there are just so many people out there that really haven't the foggiest idea of like what a union does. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to joining join us again this month. Yeah, I'm uh, glad to be here. I enjoyed the first time and I'm ready for 102. All right, let's go ahead and I've got some I've got some videos queued up. Um, that Adam can play for us. And and what we want to dwell on for the first little while, we want to kind of go in depth on this and, and because, you know, you said that it's something that is actually often forgotten, and that's inoculation. What what is inoculation exactly, Connor? So I mean it's it's really appropriate given, you know, the current moment. But um, you know, if you view um, management propaganda is kind of like a virus that spreads, preparing workers for um, preparing workers for the message that they're going to receive is kind of inoculating them against that fear, against that kind of management propaganda, because, um, you know, once workers know that this is part of a playbook, that this isn't, you know, um, tailored to them, it's not honest, it's just what you know, an outside union buster is telling management to say they're a lot more empowered to kind of deal with the um, information and uh, respond to it appropriately. Right. So what would you say is kind of the in, in your you're dealing with, you know, union campaigns and anti-union campaigns from the boss? What is one of the first things that, that they tend to say ag- against unions? Well, you know, one of, I think, the absolute first things that they usually say, especially if, you know, they've been asked to just recognize the union, which is the fairest way to do it, is that they try to kind of make it seem like, well, you know, that would silence some people that really we feel like an election is the the fairest way to um, the fairest way to kind of play this process out that we need to respect the NLRB or, you know, the public labor board process. Um, and I think that that's kind of a key moment that uh, is really important to inoculate against because it sounds right. It sounds like, oh, yeah, OK, an election like we love mm-hmm. elections. Um, and I think that kind of making sure that folks are prepared to understand that, no, you voted when you signed a union card. What they're just trying to do is stall for time. They are right. they can they have the power to recognize the thing that you want right now, and they're just choosing not to. I think that's kind of a key first kind of inoculation moment is to get rid of kind of the sense of inevitability of an NLRB election and make it clear that no, like the expectation is that management should recognize you up front. Mm -hmm. And if there's an election, that's purely because they're trying to stop you from um, expressing your democratic desire for a union. Right. Explain to us what a, well, so a union authorization card used properly is you saying and this is what they say but you know it's important for union organizers to to 
tell you that this is what it says, that, that you want a union, that you are a union. You have decided that this is what you want. It's not just something that you sign so you can get an election. It's something that ideally you present to the boss and say, we have, we have come together and we are a union uh, and we want you to recognize us. Now, uh, you know, if they don't recognize you, then you do need a certain number of those cards signed to trigger an election, like you mentioned, is is that's going to be, um, you know, just to just to stall for time so that they can really ramp up the anti-union campaign. But uh, this is something that that I've seen Jane McAlevey talk about in her books that that union organizers even can get wrong when they uh, or, or that they do incorrectly by telling people that the union authorization card is just to get an election like that's not what it's supposed to be for right yeah and you know i think that that's unfortunately something that is part of the reason that it kind of slides into that is because a lot of folks it's uncomfortable to make kind of direct asks of your mm-hmm. coworkers, even if you know that it's good for you and it's good for them and it's part of a discussion about building power. It's sometimes hard to make a direct ask like, hey, you're so you're going to support and join the union. And so there's a tendency to just kind of like, okay, I'm going to go for the easier one and say, well, right. you know, you don't actually have to vote for the union like this is just to get an election. Um, that's absolutely not best practice, like you said, uh, and Jane has really, um, I think, emphasized that. And I think the best kind of authorization cards explicitly say, no, this isn't just that you want a union. It's not just authorizing that, hey, I want a union. It's also a membership form. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the best authorization cards combine both the membership enrollment and the authorization for, yes, I want a union to represent me. Right. Um, and so I think that, of course, is harder because you're, it, it takes a commitment, but also, like Jane would say, there are no shortcuts to kind of building these kinds of unions, and you can't just kind of um, take the easier ask and then hope to kind of get people to the right place later. Right, right. And, you know, and, and so let's go ahead and Adam get ready because there's, there's a video that was I spent, I spent hours so you're welcome, everybody in the audience. I spent hours oh, watching anti all the anti-union training videos that I could find on YouTube. And Lowe's had the like there was like an hour and a half just from Lowe's that I watched. And so they had a lot of the a lot a lot of good like super boilerplate. This is what you're going to hear. And so a lot of it is going to come from a Lowe's training video that I watched. I also found some from Walmart and Target and Amazon. But Lowe's had the longest like it's like I think somebody actually got some of the v like like a vhs for the whole training program but uh, you know and and that's not you not normal like you when these when you see these these are leaked right i mean a, you know they don't want these training videos out in the public but uh it, at lowe's they uh in the training video they talked about this and they called the union authorization card like the holy grail for union organizers and that's the name of the folder that this um this video is in adam but uh and and they really they will really take advantage of 
if you're if you're being a kind of a lazy organizer and you don't tell people that this is, you know, this is to say that you're a un- you're a union, you're a member of the union, you want to be authorized f- for uh, 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 as a union, um, and if you tell them that this is just for an election, you know, the boss is really going to take advantage of that. So let's go ahead and play that, Adam. The holy grail to an organizer is a signed union authorization card. It basically is a legal document that says the employee is giving the union the right to speak for them in terms of wages, benefits, and working conditions. It's like giving the union power of attorney and lets them make binding agreements that employees must live by. If at least 30% of the employees sign those cards, the union can take them to the NLRB and petition for an election. However, most unions will wait until they have at least 50% signed up and usually closer to 60 to 70% because they know that many of those people will shift sides during the ongoing campaign. It also makes the union appear to be much stronger than it really might be and makes employees think they better get on board if they don't want to be left out. There are also some instances where unions can get in a company using authorization cards. All right, that's enough there. (laughs) This sometimes Um, happens in companies that may already. Yeah, and that's and he was going to talk about card check, which is which is what you um you know which is what you were talking about, Connor, which is which is saying you know using the card as a uh like we are you know we intend to be a union, and so uh, the management is really gonna they're they're really going to uh push that if you're if you're not upfront with them and. You know, you're telling them that that's just going to be for the election because it's real. You know, it's not just for the election. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, you know, the thing is, and just listening to a very small snippet of that, they actually know, like, how this works. Right. Um, like, you know, sophisticated union busters know exactly how this kind of campaign works. They know our playbook as well as we know their playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that. One of the things that is really important to keep in mind is, like you said, if you take shortcuts, they will pounce on those shortcuts and it will lead to bad outcomes. Um, And I just was thinking like the whole presentation of like this is a binding, you know, um, legal agreement, yada, Mm -hmm. yada, yada. It's just like it's trying to give people the sense of like, oh, my God, what did I sign? Like right. every single time that you read through a terms of service or something and like, oh, geez, did I just sign away like my DNA or something <laughs> like right. it's trying to create this perception that, oh, my God, I don't know what I actually signed and to create uncertainty about that. And one of the things that I often hear is kind of a next step is that union or uh, union avoidance attorneys um, or union busters will often tell workers, hey, you can get you can get your authorization card back. They'll try to say that you can revoke it. Um, and so that's kind of the next step of that playbook is getting people to actually pull their cards. Right. So, I mean, but like you said, if you educate people about what the card means up front, that's part of the inoculation as well. Mm-hmm. Because then people are like, okay, yeah, it's, you know, I know exactly what this is, what it does, and I'm totally comfortable with the fact that I signed it. Right. Yeah. I mean, good education real good upfront education is also can also function as inoculation um another one of the things that they're going to do in an anti-union campaign is they're going to try to make unions look bad as institutions um and uh one of the things that they say is uh uh 
the union is a business. That's the um, that's the name of the folder in the, in the next for the next video. So let's go ahead and get that queued up because they want. To, and it's funny that they say a union is a business, and that's supposed to like make them sound bad. But uh, <laughs> because they're a business, right? They're the you know they're obviously a business where a union is is not actually a business. But let's go ahead and play that, and let's well you know what is what are some what do you think, Connor? This video is going to say. Honestly, you know, I think that it's going to my guess is that it's going to focus on, you know, they just want to sign up um, members for dues. That's really all it is. They're trying to get dues revenue. They make money off of you paying dues and they might even throw something in that, look, unions are in decline. And so they're Mm -hmm. trying to sign up as many people as they can to, you know, avoid that. Yeah, and I wanted to give you the I wanted to give you the chance to do that so that the audience knows just how boilerplate these things are because that's almost exactly what they say. Adam, go ahead and roll that clip. A union is not a charity. It's not a club, and it's not part of the government. It's a business. A business that has to take in money to survive. But it doesn't have any products to sell. All it has is memberships to sell. A union's only source of income is the money they charge members. Money for initiation and dues and fines and assessments, you get the picture. So it's pretty obvious that the fewer members their business has, the less money they collect. The union's only alternative is to get more people to pay their hard-earned money to them in dues every month. And that's becoming more and more of a problem for unions every day. 50 years ago, one out of every three workers was in a union. Today... Yep. See, so that, yeah, I mean, that's everything, <laughs> everything that you said, Connor, is like, that's, that's what they're going to find. And that was actually from a Target anti-union video, but they also had stuff like that in the Lowe's and in the Amazon, you know, it's all, it's really all the same. What is like, what is your response or, or how do you, how do you inoculate workers against this misinformation from management before they hear it? Well, I think that one of the first things is, again, this is part of, I think, a broader trend in um, anti-union campaigns trying to make the the union seem like an outside party that you're paying money to. And I think that a good, well-organized campaign is driven by the workers and empowers the workers, and they understand that they have ownership of it in a way that really makes that message not land effectively because they're going to look around themselves and say, no, we're making the decisions. We're not paying money to some outside party. The union is us. Right. Um, and so I think that's one of the best things that you can do to kind of strengthen a campaign against that kind of approach and then just make people understand what those dues are for and that management is going to tell you this. Um, understanding that those dues are about collective power management has buckets of money as shown by the amount of money that they spend on union quote unquote avoidance consultants. All we have is organized people and organized money and dues are just organized money and how it's used is decided by the membership of the union. So ultimately this is money that's accountable to those members that they decide how it's used Um, I don't know of any workplace where, um, certainly not in the United States, where workers have any voice in how capital in the business is directed or invested or, you know, reinvested in the uh, the enterprise. So, I mean, it's 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 trying to create this false equivalence like, well, why would you even trust them? They're just a business. You know, they're just trying to scam you. But 
I mean, it's very clearly different. Right. Well, that I, I mean, that's a really good segue into the um, the open door policy. Right. This is something that you're going to hear any time that you want to try to talk about any time that you want to try to talk about organizing, about making your job better. They're going to say that if you get a union in here, you can't talk to me. And now, I mean, like, how often do you actually talk to your boss about things that that bother you? And how often if you do that, how often does that actually get resolved? Right. The answer is is not very often, but they want to. But and, and during union campaigns, uh, one of the things that they'll try to do is is they will try to be more responsive. This is something that we heard from people down in Amazon that in Bessemer that that, you know, uh, they never the, the management, the supervisors never cared about what they had to say before. But all of a sudden, once the campaign became real, uh, they had, a uh, you know, a manager or supervisor come in every two every two or three minutes like, hey, is there, you know, anything that I can get, you know, anything that you need, anything that you want to talk about? Like, you know, I just want to check in on you and see how you're doing. You know, we've got an open door policy here and things like that. And and it's just um, I, I mean, the. That's <laughs> it's not true for one, but um, but you know, I mean, in reality, what the the what they are trying to make you believe is that you have a real say on the job now. That's what they're trying to make you believe, and the reality is that you don't, and that the best way to secure a voice on the job is to unionize, right? I mean, is there anything uh, uh, that, that you would want to add to that before we play one of those videos? Nope, that sounds pretty much right on the nose to me. <laughs> yeah, Let, let's go ahead and play uh, the first video in that in that folder there, Adam. Have you heard about it, but some of the people in our area have been thinking about getting a union here. They said that you didn't really care one way or another. Is that true? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked about it, because I do care. And the bottom line is, is that Lowe's feels that unions aren't in our best interests and that that can work better. You know, maybe a third party getting in the middle of things. We just think that they aren't needed here. I mean, we've got an open door policy. We've got other procedures already in place to deal with problems that might come up. So I agree with that 100 percent. Well, they said that a union. Okay, let's go ahead and pause that real quick, and then we'll 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 hit on the. what she's about to say there but yeah i mean that's exactly what they're going to say i mean connor how how much how much control how much of a voice on the job do you really think that people have without a union really not that much and i think that the bottom line is it's as much as management wants to give you right you don't have any independent power behind how much of a say that you have it's purely as much as management wants to give you and Getting back to kind of the inoculation piece, this is one of those things that I think you can really kind of anticipate is that playing people through the scenario of what actually happens when you go to management and bring them a problem. And I think one of the scenarios that I really like to um, kind of walk through with workers is, okay, have you ever gone to management with a problem? Okay, you know, kind of what happened? And usually it's the best case scenario is they listened sympathetically and but nothing ever happened um Mm -hmm. there are very few instances in fact i've never had um a worker in a campaign tell me oh they listened they dealt with it right then never 
I've never <laughs> once heard that. So, right. I, you know, taking it to the next logical step, okay, let's just take the example of like a um, school. Um, what happens if the entire custodial staff goes to the maintenance supervisor with a problem? What if they all go? Well, that's a little bit different. And then you start getting results and it kind of gets them to the idea that, okay, when they say that they have an open door policy, they're not going to get anything from that with the support of a union, you will have something and some ability to actually get management to respond. Right, right. I, I, um, I, I wouldn't have thought to say that here, but that's a good point that, you know, to the extent maybe, you know, maybe you do have some some sort of a voice on the job wherever you work in a, in a non-union facility, but the voice comes at the complete and, uh, like, uh, the complete discretion of the boss like you said there is no you know if you get a new boss tomorrow or if he like forgets to drink his coffee in the morning it can all be gone at the drop of a hat where your ability to influence the job uh, uh influence your working conditions is uh like you can actually do that without your you know without your boss his mood changing your ability to influence your um your working conditions and that's that's a huge that that's a really great point connor um right i mean how good is an open door if it can be opened and closed at will without your input Right, right. And, and the, uh, you know, we had somebody in the chat, Pierre, mentioned that an open door policy can identify workers who, are sta- who will stand up. So open, yes. so open dooring an issue can actually get you fired um, or, or could lead to, uh, you know, could lead to potential disciplinary actions on your part uh, if you take yeah. advantage of that open door policy. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was just um, talking to a nurse uh, who was talking about how she worked in a non-union um, workplace for a little bit before moving into a union job. And, um, you know, being that person that asks questions mm-hmm. gets a target painted on your back as a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That it, it really and with the target on your back as a troublemaker without a union, you can really be be in some real trouble there that that's going to, um, you know, uh it, it, it can make your life difficult. And I think we have to be real that that is a tactic that some managers use. Not all are just mm-hmm. outright bullies who, you know, right. yell and scream in the workplace. There are plenty who take the sympathetic ear, right. uh, invite you in the door, fix you a cup of coffee so that you spill your guts. And now they know everything they need to know to, um, you know, tamp down any dissatisfaction and to keep an eye on you, you know, the person who complained. Yep. So the... We, we've talked, you know, so some of the things that we've talked about, they're going to, um, you know, they're going to try to make the union look bad. They're going to, uh, you know, push about, uh, uh, you know, the things that ostensibly you have already without a union. They're, they're going to want to try to make it sound like, oh, your life is so good already. Why would you even need a union? Um, they're going to try to make the unions look bad. But also the next thing, some of the next things that they're going to try to do is to say that 
they're going to do one or they're going to do both things. These two things. They're going to say that the union will actually make it worse. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the ways that they say that unions can can make things worse. And also that unions uh, won't change any that, that they can't guarantee any changes. Right. So they're going to say that they'll make it worse potentially or they won't be able to change. The only thing that's going to change is you're going to get dues taken out of your pay check. So we're going to talk about those two things on the other side of this break. Then we're going to be talking about some uh, bargaining your first contract once you win a union election. We are going over Unions 102 with Connor Lewis from Strike Wave. Really enjoying the conversation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. We are joined by Connor Lewis. He is a union staffer in Pennsylvania. He is a member of the independent labor journalism collective Strike Wave. And we are talking uh, Unions 102. Last month we did a Unions 101 episode where we went over the super basics. We went over, like, what is a union? How do you get one? How do they work? What can they do for you? Some really basic stuff. This week, we are talking about what the employer, what your boss is going to try to do to keep you from having a union and convince you that it is not in your best interest when it very clearly is. And we are going to go into some bargaining, uh, some what it's, what, what it's going to be like when you actually get to help write the contract you work under it's uh so we're 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 if you missed unions 101 Last month, you can find that on our podcast feed or our YouTube channel, um, thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe or YouTube at the Valley Labor Report. Good, good places to go. Um, and if you want to learn more about what's happening in the labor community, you have got to check out StrikeWave. Uh, it is thestrikewave.org. It is a fantastic place to go. They have, uh, they have stories that no one else has and in ways that no one else has it. Uh, it it's it's a really good place. They've got a newsletter you should sign up for. Uh, you can sign up for it on their website, thestrikewave.org. Great place to go. Really, really great place. Um, so we appreciate Connor's time today. And we had another person mention in the chat, that, and, and I want to... Uh, re, uh, repeat what they said for everybody listening on the radio because it's such a good point before we go into uh, you know what they're going to say about what unions can and can't do. Um, he said on the issue of unions being a business and trying to, you know, y- unions only want to organize because they're a business. And so we just we just want to um, regenerate and like it's a profit motive. And that's the only thing motivating unions. Um, and and so therefore unions are bad. Jeb, who is a member of the iron workers here in uh, in the area, he said that I'd love to see these businesses have pre-approval by their employees for all expenditures the way that the union does. Not a penny is spent that my membership doesn't know about and approve. And that's so important, right? Like businesses don't operate that way. Every 
penny is uh, that is spent by unions is uh, they make that aware to their membership and it has to be approved by their membership. That is something that simply does not happen with uh, with businesses. That level of transparency, that democratic input, uh, which really kind of puts the notion of unions as a business to bed because businesses are top-down hierarchical institutions that the people at the bottom don't have any control over. And that's just simply not the way that unions that's simply not the way that unions operate. I think that's a really important point. I'm glad you emphasized that because you know, all unions vary in how democratic they are, how transparent they are, and some, you know, have some room for progress. That's, you know, we've never shot away from that on this show. Uh, but even those who, who have their issues are far more democratic and far more transparent than any company will ever be. Yeah. The company has no reason to do that. Uh, and the only way you have any sort of transparency or democracy in the workplace is by organizing and having a union. So I'm, I'm glad, you know, thanks, Jeb, for pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah, we love Jeb. The Ironworkers are a uh, proud sponsor of the show. We are proud to have them as well. Uh, love Jeb. Love the Ironworkers here. So um, and let me just say, uh, you know, you're talking about inoculation and what mm-hmm. companies uh, do to convince you that you do not need a union. Uh, and I, I've seen this meme go around on social media, and it's just one of the truest things I've ever seen. That much like condoms, if someone is trying really hard to convince you don't need a union, that is all the more reason that you need one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's go ahead and talk about what the employer is going to try to do to convince you that not only is your life great now, you don't need to change it, but unions might not do anything to change it or... um, or they might make it worse. So this video is going to be in the uh, uh, the unions can't guarantee folder. Let's go ahead and just play the first video there and and see what they say. All right, let's cue this up. We got more lows on the way. Collective bargaining is when the union and the company meet and negotiate in an attempt to reach agreement over such things as wages, benefits, and working conditions. Both parties have an obligation to bargain in good faith which means they must have the intention of reaching an agreement. However, neither party is compelled to make any concessions or agree to anything that is not in its best interest. What that means for employees is that no matter what an organizer might have promised them, the company does not have to give in to any union demands. It becomes a game of give and take, with both sides usually making deals to get what it wants. In the end, when the ink is dry, employees might find themselves with a better overall package, They might find that they have almost exactly the same things or, as happens in many cases, they find that they have actually ended up with less than they started with. Yeah, many cases. Okay, that's enough. uh, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, like a lot of really effective propaganda, there's just enough elements of truth in there to, you know, lull you to sleep. Right, right. Yeah. So let's talk about that first. In, In many cases, employees are going to find themselves worse off actually i mean connor how like let's talk about in many cases how often does that happen with a first contract i would say pretty much never um i think that you know if you look at some of the kind of legacy units that have been around for a long time that are fighting off concessions you know, that might be a little bit more true, but at the same time, they're still better off than they would be if management could just close down the plant and offshore it. So, I mean, like, right. 
I don't know how you can really say that that's worse off. But as far as first contracts, you know, I think that what they're really kind of choosing to leave out there is that those people, the employees that are watching the video, will get to vote on any agreement before it's actually approved. Right. So if it's an agreement that they're not just going to wake up one morning and be handed a collective bargaining agreement, they're going to be part of the process, they're going to get updates, they're going to be involved in it, and they're going to have a democratic say over is this good enough or is this not good enough. So the idea that you know they're just going to wake up and have a CBA handed to them is just not real. That's exactly right, and that's something that that Amazon was really pushing hard during uh, the Bessemer campaign, that they can't promise you anything. They can't promise you anything. And like, yeah, that's true, because it's not they who are going to be doing anything. Like, fundamentally, it's you. The workers in Bessemer were the ones that had the power to get a union in, and once they got a union in, if they had gotten one in, then uh, they would have had the power to uh, to bargain the contract. They would have elected a bargaining committee from the rank and file. They would have probably done surveys to see what the priorities of the membership were. And they would have bargained themselves. Why? Because they would have been, and they are, uh, the union. You know, there's not, you, you don't have uh, these, uh, it's not as top down as they want to make it seem. Uh, and, and, um, you know, like you said, they any contract would have to be voted on by them. And if they don't like the contract, they can say no, go back to the bargaining table and 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 try it again because we don't like it. Um, so and and that's a good thing that you mentioned uh, in one of the other videos. They said that um, you know, let me show you some contracts where they gave concessions, and it's like. Exactly like you mentioned, on a first contract, you are almost never going to be better or worse off than you began. But if you've been in a legacy agreement or, you know, you've you've been in a union for a long time, the boss, it's possible that maybe this contract is worse than your last contract. But that's not the thing for people to compare it to. It's it is in a non-union environment. Now, in a union environment, you know, there are things that you should be doing to organize to get better contracts and fight off concessions. Yes. But in a non-union environment, which is what probably 80, 90 percent of our audience is, that's not what you need to com- be comparing it to the contract that this union has versus their last one. It's look at their contract that they've got now versus the conditions that you're working under, the wages that you have. And uh, I can almost guarantee you, if you're in the same industry, that it's going to be better for them. They have, they're going to have a better contract than you do. And, um, and, and so it, 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 that's really important for people to recognize uh, when, you know, and, and like we, we talked, we, elaborated on this dynamic last month when we were uh, doing our Unions 101 episode. And the reason that happens that unions are able to get good contracts is because collective bargaining inherently gives more power to the employee because of the, uh, uh, you know, because of the collectivization of the interests and the labor of the workers, because all of the workers at a Lowe's are going to have more power than one worker at the Lowe's. I mean, it's, it's really easy to, um, you know, it's really easy to think about or, or it's really easy to understand. Um, and when they don't say that unions can't guarantee this or that thing, they're going to point at 
not things that unions do try to do and try to twist it and make it sound bad. One of the things that unions often bargain for is seniority. And that's a good thing. I think that, I think that if you, anybody, you talk to anybody, you're going to think that, oh, yeah, if I have given my 30 best years to a company, I should have, absolutely, I should have some protection that people who just started working here last week, they might not have. I think if, if you talk to anybody, I think that makes sense. But let's go to, uh, let's go to seniority in the folder, Adam, and see how they try to twist it and make seniority a bad thing. Well, thanks for coming in. As you know, we need to talk about the vacancy in your department and who's the best person to fill it. And I've asked Tom to sit in since he's the union steward now. Oh, well, I think Jim has done the best job of anyone and he'd make a good choice. Uh, Hold on now. I have the seniority list right here and it says that Andy's number one. Jim's way down the list here. Yeah, but Andy isn't really the leader that Jim is. Well, is Andy a bad employee? No, he does all right, but Jim... Then is he a discipline problem? No, not really, although his attendance could be better. Ah, I see. Well, does he have any warnings for bad attendance? No, but Jim is a better worker. Well, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, the contract the company signed clearly states that we go by seniority, which makes Andy the only choice. Though, if you folks will excuse me, I'm off to give Andy the good news. All right. So, Connor, what what are what's your first take on that? I wish to God I had that much power. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, that's wild. Yeah. I mean, no, no union steward, no union rep can cruise into a meeting with that kind of energy. I mean, that's just not how it works. Um, You know, I think that the idea that first off, the idea that management is legitimately making the best decisions based on performance, any employee can tell you flat out, that's not how it works. Right. Management plays favorites. They do not actually have like an objective view of employee performance and who's going to do the best job. They're going to play favorites. And I think that anyone intuitively knows that that's how management operates. They are going to put the person they want, whether or not that person is the right person for the job. And that's just ultimately how it's going to play out. And even if there are, you know, evaluation or performance, you know, like measurement systems in place, we all know as well that on any kind of evaluation, the outcome is going to depend on what mood your boss is is in that day. I mean, those are not fair or objective. So the idea that you suddenly have, you know, a union steward swaggering into a meeting to just pull out the seniority list and say, well, you know, this person's getting the job. One, that's not how it works. And two, I think that if you take a step back and actually look at, okay, how does this decision making process work and how does management actually decide, in my experience, how do they decide who gets, you know, the job? Well, usually the people that get promoted are the people that aren't arguing with management and do whatever management wants, not necessarily the best person for the job. So, I mean, the whole premise of it is just totally off from, I think, what any worker has experienced in their workplace. And that's when you get back to the fact that, you know, ultimately there is no perfectly fair system. Seniority is the fairest of the possible situations. 
And I think it's reasonable that, look, if this employee is not a bad employee, they've done their work, they've, you know, put in their time, um, they've gained experience that other employees may not have, then that employee, you know, should get the opportunity for a promotion. Right. And, you know, there. this is something that RWDSU was uh, mentioning to employees that uh, seniority isn't the only thing that people bargain for and you can bargain for and in a lot of contracts they do have performance-based raises and promotions as well as seniority so it's not an either or thing you can have both and you can you can fight for both and who decides what to fight for it's the membership, right? So if you want more performance-based raises and promotions or you want performance to count for a higher um you know to count for more in the decision in that decision-making process, then do that. It's up to you. You're the union. Yeah, I mean, the idea again that like there's just this one way that unions do things. I mean, there are ways that, you know, in my experience I have, you know, a perspective on kind of the best case scenario of how things should operate. But ultimately, unions, unions as like an outside party or whatever, um, don't impose things on workers. Whatever actually comes out of it is going to be what the workers want, just like you said. So if they genuinely want something that's more performance based or whatever, then they can do that. And ultimately, you know, transferring between positions, not every contract says that, you know, it's automatically going to go to the person with seniority. Like, absolutely. Uh, That's not what every contract says. A lot of them still give management discretion over, you know, who actually gets the position. Right, right. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I mean, the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> their portrayal of the union steward and, and the contract. I mean, that would be a crazy contract, right, That for for any company to agree to. And that's just, that's not the kind of contracts that, that, that are actually signed that give, um, that, that have that much power for the workers, uh, which, I, you know, I mean, that would be great if that would, if that was the con, that, the type of contract that oh, gave yeah. unions unilateral control over, you know, the workers unilateral control over who got promoted and how, you know, that would be great, but that's not the world that we live in, clearly. I mean, that's something that we, I mean, realistically, that was a big part of what unions pushed for up until the 1950s. And, you know, that kind of control, more control over the operations, over kind of like um, these kinds of decisions. And ultimately, I mean, we we were forced to kind of give that up. Now, whether or not that's a good thing, I think it's a bad thing. But I mean, that is the world that we live in, that we don't have the level of power that they're trying to portray in there. I wish we did, because I think that anyone would agree that, Workers are going to make better decisions about those things than management usually is, but that's just not the world we inhabit. Right, right. Yeah, that that's definitely the case. And and yeah, talk to us. You you've mentioned this before, the Treaty of Detroit, in some of your writings. Can you give us a rundown of exactly like what that is in relation to worker control of of like what happens in the company? So the very very kind of brief. Um, 
brief kind of summary of it is the Treaty of Detroit was this contract that was signed between General Motors and the UAW, I think it was 1950. Um, and one of the big pushes that the UAW had been really kind of uh, angling for was more control over uh, business decisions, more control over actual like um, directing <clears throat> the enterprise, not just, you know, shop floor decisions, but also big picture decisions about how General Motors um, and also Chrysler and Ford were actually like managed um, with the idea that workers should have much more control in how the operation uh, actually worked. Um, and so what ended up happening, which ended up, I think, kind of setting the pattern for how contracts and um, collective bargaining law evolved over the next, well, up until now, is they ended up giving that up and seeding the idea that management has inherent rights that they don't have to bargain over, that they just automatically have, which the default one is, you know, to control and direct the operations of, you know, the enterprise. Um, and they also gave up a five-year agreement, which up until that point, the UAW had really only agreed to one-year agreements, right. and they almost always led to strikes. And so UAW, GM and then Chrysler and Ford signed similar agreements. Um, so, you know, they gave up a lot of stuff on, like, the economic end. They gave up profit sharing. They gave up pretty good health insurance, uh, pensions, that kind of thing, wage increases that really kind of vaulted UAW workers into the middle class. But UAW gave up, like, this uh, push for more actual power over um, how the business operated, uh, which ended up really, um, you know, not playing out too great in over the next uh, course of the next, especially once you got into the 1970s, um, that really ended up, I think, hamstringing uh, not just yeah. the UAW, but a lot of organized labor. Right, right. So the next, uh, the, the, the next thing that unions bargain for that they're going to try to twist into a bad thing is, um, you know, is job descriptions, is making it like, you know, if you are assigned to a job, making it so that your job description is defined and you can't be made to like go outside of your job description with additional without additional pay, right? Or, uh, you know, how how else would you describe that that kind of clause in a contract? I'm not terribly familiar with it myself, but it's really common in in a lot of contracts. Can you explain that for us, Connor? Depending on exactly how it's written, um, it's, it's not really diversion of work, but basically if you're working outside of your classification, uh, the interpretation usually from unions is that you should get paid for um, the rate of the work that you're doing. Um, so, you know, if you're paid, let's say you're a high school paraprofessional and they assign you to some custodial work and you normally get paid, you know, 12 bucks and custodial gets paid 15 bucks for the time that you're doing that custodial work, you should be getting paid 15 bucks rather than 12 bucks because that's the value that the contract assigns to that work. Right. Um, and so like just kind of figuring out like, is this within my job or is it within a different job um, under the same contract and what rate am I going to get paid? I don't know that there's really necessarily like a, an umbrella term for it, but kind of mm -hmm. like that's a typical way that unions um, will look at, you know, working outside of a job description or classification. All right. Yeah. And so the folder that this is under, Adam, is rigidity. Let's go. Uh, let's play that uh, the first video there and see what they say about this phenomenon in contracts. 
If the unions did try to organize target team members, they could also try and bring along their way of doing business, an old-fashioned rigid structure. Old-fashioned is right. Being able to change quickly and adapt to new opportunities being flexible. That's the key to running a successful business in today's market, and we've got the flexibility now. Right you are. No one knows exactly what could happen, but there are lots of examples of how rigid grocery store union contracts could hurt our store's ability to serve guests and actually hurt our team members in the process. Sorry, I thought there was uh, uh, that wasn't the one I was thinking about. There's go to the second one in that folder. There's actually not a second one. Oh, there's not a second one? Not oh, okay. under a rigid man. structure, no. Oh, man, I'm sorry about that. Well, so the video that I was thinking of, they they gave a situation where some a customer needed something in a different department in the store, and the worker wouldn't be able, under this imaginary union contract, they wouldn't be able to help this customer, right? And, <laughs> and I mean, like, it's just, again... That's like not the type of contract that you're actually going to see, right? Yeah, I mean, one just on just thinking about like trying to play that out. I mean, an employee will even if they're you know assigned to one department or something, they can at least direct you to the right person for the next one. I mean, I like mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't even understand like a contract wouldn't create that problem. Like, I, I don't understand um, their argument as far as it creating a situation where customer service, you know, uh, suffers. But I mean, I think that like looking, taking the example of like a grocery store, um, if you've got like, for example, a cashier that's getting paid at a certain rate and then you ask them to go work in the back, you know, in the um, uh you know, in the back of the store, um, stocking shelves or something, and that's like a different classification paid at a different rate and maybe potentially a higher rate, then, I mean, they can still be directed to do that. There's nothing stopping management from having someone work outside of classification. It's it's purely a question of what rate are they going to get paid. Right. Um, And is management willing to do that? You know, maybe you could concoct a scenario where management is simply not willing to pay a cashier stocking money. And so therefore, under the rules of that management has created, cashiers can't do this or that thing. And maybe that makes it more rigid. But that's a result of management. Right. I mean, realistically, a lot of kind of union busting rhetoric is actually stuff that is ultimately the fault of management that they're then punting onto unions as they're the bad guys. I mean, it's the same thing when you get a lot of these kinds of one of the things I constantly hear is, you know, greedy unions closing down factories. And it's like, no, it's unions expecting a reasonable like refusing to take concessions. That's not greed. That's corporate greed that unions are standing up to. But suddenly it becomes, you know, greedy unions are closing down factories. Um, I mean, it's in that same situation. It's them placing a management problem. We don't want to pay someone the actual value of the work that they're doing and then making it somehow the unions, you know, fault. Right, right. Yep, we are coming up on uh, our final break. We've got one more segment uh, with Connor Lewis going over some more stuff in unions, and we're going to round out. We're going to round out uh, with the reason that all of this, and they actually... (laughs) 
they accidentally told the truth in, in one of them. And so we're going to play that. We're going to have some laughs. And then we're going to talk about negotiating a contract with Connor Lewis, a union staffer from Pennsylvania, a member of the Independent Labor Journalism Collective Strike Wave. Folks, stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Put it there, boy, we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. My name is Jacob Morrison. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. I'm here with my co-host, Adam Keller. We are joined by Connor Lewis. He is a union staffer in Pennsylvania. He is a member of the Independent Labor Journalism Collective Strike Wave. And we have set aside the agenda for today, and we are talking about unions. We are talking about some of the things that the boss is going to try to tell you to convince you not to to join a union, uh, we've been we've been going over some uh, some some really important stuff, uh, some really serious stuff, and so now we're gonna have we're gonna have a couple of laughs. So, um, Adam, go to the uh, the new terminology folder, and this is where they're telling managers what to look out for. <laughs> That, that there might be a union drive in your uh, in your store. So uh, go ahead and play that, and we'll see what they uh, what they want managers to look out for. The sudden use of new terminology favored by unions, such as dignity and respect. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you start <laughs> if you start talking about dignity and respect, then you, oh, how God. dare you? You might have a union on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe that's, you know, I guess if you, uh, but really, if you want dignity and respect, even management is saying right there, you need to join a union. <laughs> that is, oh, that is a peak example of telling on yourself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed that one. That was great. And so, speaking of telling on yourself, this is this is the last video that I, I wanted to make sure that we played. And this video, Adam, is going to be in um, in a different perspective, in the different perspective folder. And this is again, this is from a Lowe's video training managers on how to bust a union and this is the opening to a segment that they say uh they're going to show you uh they're going to look at things through a different perspective adam let's play that as part of the program we're going to look at your role as a manager from a different perspective than you're used to one that is often overlooked we're going to look at a manager's job at lowe's through the eyes of your employees After all, they are the ones who really make things happen. Without them, you'd be in charge of a huge inventory with no one to help market it. That's right. That's right. That's it. Okay. They get it. (laughs) Apparently they get it. Labor (laughs) creates all wealth and Lowe's admitted it. I mean, (laughs) holy crap. Man, it would really suck to be a manager and actually have to do some work because you didn't have your workers around. Holy crap. Oh, my gosh. I mean, how? (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you know, fine. They can pack it up. We'll just do the work for them. (laughs) If you want to cut costs, start there. 
you've admitted who does the work and who doesn't. Right. You're looking to slash costs. We can find some places for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. Wow. If like talk about letting the mask slip. And, you know, that's one of the reasons, because like I said, this isn't this isn't something that they're going to show to employees. Right. They don't want their employees getting any uppity thoughts. This is what they're showing to managers. Uh, and, and so they're trying to like instill in the managers the importance of like not allowing workers to know this. You know? <laughs> they don't want workers to realize that they just said. They're the ones who make, quote, everything work. Workers are the ones that make everything work according to the boss. Okay? Just, just don't let on that that's true because then they might dare to ask for such things as dignity or respect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Those dangerous concepts. Right, right, right. Yeah. All right. So yeah, you definitely those people that don't do anything definitely need to watch out for dignity and respect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, I think we've had enough fun uh, uh, w- with that, uh, Connor. So we've we're we spent a long time longer than I thought we would, but I think it's good. I think it's good stuff on the inoculation on like what you can expect from the manager during a union campaign. You've made it through the union campaign. You have won. You are a union. And now it's time to bargain your first union contract. Connor, what are some of the things that people can expect? So tying it back to kind of the whole campaign period and the inoculation piece, one of the things that uh, you mentioned is that management often says there are no promises, there are no guarantees, that there's a give and take. One of the things that they often will say is that you start from a blank slate, which is basically trying to create the maximum level of uncertainty. That's not exactly true because there is a status quo requirement after a union is certified that management can't uh, can't change your working conditions, including reducing pay or you know changing compensation. Uh, until a contract is negotiated. So they can't unilaterally just make things worse. They have to actually bargain with the union and anything that comes out of that is going to be voted on by the members. So, you know, this whole kind of idea of creating this uncertainty that something is just going to happen and it's outside of your control is trying to make you feel like, well, you're, you're still going to have the same powerlessness you have right now. Um, whereas, you know, the reality is, no, you have control over what comes out of the bargaining process because you're going to be part of, you know, creating what that agreement is going to look like. And you're also going to um, have the right to vote over what it looks like. So some of the things that I think um, show the level of power and input you have that you just don't have in a non-union workplace is any kind of contract or proposal that the union brings to management is going to be decided by the workers. There are a couple of different ways that you can do that. Um, Unions are often going to immediately start surveying people about what they want out of a contract. That's a very standard way of doing it. Um, You know, often you'll get employee surveys that are kind of thrown out by management, but everyone knows that those never actually lead to anything. Whereas with the union survey, you're collecting this information and it leads directly to what are we proposing to management? So that's one of the key ways in which unions give you the voice that management is only pretending to give you. And I think that's kind of a key distinction is 
um, you're actually being, your input is being solicited, but it's actually being listened to and is directly informing the entire process. And, you know, unions will often do like, you know, shift meetings or that kind of thing. Um, they'll do, you know, regular kind of like, um, one of the things that I personally like to do is to go building to building and actually talk to people like, what's making your job harder? What hmm. makes, what would make it easier? What are the things that you like to try to get a sense of how do you feel about your workplace and what are the things that we can do to make sure that the good things stay the way they are and that the not so great things are improved. And so, these are the ways that they kind of like inform how are we going to put together the proposal and then what happens is that um, on like a technical perspective is the union says look we're going to negotiate we're going to set bargaining dates they'll create a bargaining team often the bargaining team is going to be elected by the membership so you have a direct say in who's actually going to represent you in negotiations um, and then they're going to sit down with management and actually start negotiating Usually a union is going to bring a first proposal, though not always. Um, and then, you know, you go back and forth over proposals uh, to try to reach an ultimate agreement. And once you have a sense that you have a tentative agreement, uh, you bring it back to the membership uh, for yes or no. If they vote yes, then, you know, you move forward with it. If you vote no, then the union goes back to the bargaining table or may start thinking about, um, doing something like um, a strike authorization vote. But um, ultimately, I think that like the process is really on the front end, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of trying to get a sense of what the priorities are and what we need to accomplish and building consensus around that. And again, workers actually have a say in who's going to go to the bargaining table for them. So, you know, you actually choose your representatives. You choose the people that you feel are going to represent your interests, and you get to decide what those interests are. So, I mean, that's kind of how the bargaining process kind of kicks off. Right, right. The the um, the bargaining committee in almost in virtually all, maybe all, uh, um, contract negotiations includes people from the rank and file, like actually people who are going to maybe you or people that you work right beside on the day to day. They are going to be elected by their coworkers to actually bargain, sit across the table from the boss and uh, do these negotiations. And oftentimes they'll be sent for training on like um, how to do bargaining, like how contract uh, language is, is written. Can you talk to us about some of those trainings that people might can expect uh, if, if they're members of the bargaining committee? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what you're going to get um, is a lot of training on both process, just kind of making sure that folks understand how the bargaining process works um, from a legal perspective, but also, you know, what makes a good contract? What are the elements of a contract that, maximizes worker protection what are things that you know we we do encourage what are some proposals we may see uh, that here are the reasons that we may oppose it um, what are the ways that we can create the fairest kind of compensation structure for uh, workers that we possibly can um, i mean there will be a lot of really in-depth training on both the process as well as 
okay, we've gathered all this information about what workers are hoping to accomplish. What are the ways that we can actually put this into good contract language that we can enforce? Um, and so that's very, very standard. Like every union is going to offer training for um, workers that are going to be involved in contract negotiations to help them feel confident that, okay, I understand what I've been told by the membership and here's how I best accomplish that. Um, so, you know, it's not like you're just kind of thrown into right. bargaining with, you know, a massive corporation or whatever. You have support um, from the international union or your local uh, to actually train you on this is how it works. And then you have ongoing support from, you know, staff, there are research departments that unions have that can uh, help do um, corporate research on, you know, big corporations or, you know, just financials and that kind of thing. So it's not like you're just thrown into it. You have this incredible support network, which is going back to this whole idea that it's a business, that's what the dues pay for, is this support network that helps you bargain right. and enforce good contracts. Right. Um, so, you know, the workers are up front, the workers ultimately are deciding what happens, but there is a support network for them to help them on their, you know, on their own end, approach that process from a stance of, you know, knowing that, I'm confident that I know how this works, that I know, you know, um, what makes a good contract and what makes a bad contract. And then there's a huge kind of support network, whether it's organizers, researchers, whatever, to help them accomplish getting that good contract. Yeah, well, accomplishing getting the good contract, what what do the negotiations actually look like? And maybe even what should they look like? Because there are some differences in how negotiations are done. And that's something that you and uh, that, that you I, I've seen you really rely on Jane's work advocating for open bargaining. Maybe talk to us about about that process. Yeah, so traditionally, and one thing I will preface this all with is that negotiations are not easy. And for the people that do it or for anyone, and I don't think that there's any use sugarcoating that. I don't think that should discourage people, but I think that people, you know, need to kind of know what they're getting into um, up front because, you know, depending on how negotiations are structured, we're talking some very, very long hours um, yeah. and some very, very stressful situations. Um, as far as kind of the process, one of the things that unions have traditionally done is a very kind of closed bargaining process where you have a limited team uh, that negotiates with management and updates to the membership um, are not necessarily um, that informative. And part of this is, you know, a sense that the negotiation process is really kind of um, a closed process that that's what produces the best outcomes. It's really just kind of a, a philosophical approach to bargaining that I think has some, there's a reason behind it. And there's a genuine belief, I think, among some people that it delivers the best outcomes for workers. But I think that what we've grown to see, especially over the past couple of decades, is that it really doesn't. And so you mentioned, Jane, in the uh, Labor Center at uh, UC Berkeley actually put out this report taking a couple of case studies from Unite Here, um, NJEA, the New, uh, New Jersey NEA affiliate, uh, so teachers and support staff, 
and then also the News Guild um, talking about open bargaining. And the idea that instead of just, um, you know, a couple of people at the bargaining table, we're going to opt for big bargaining. Um, and actually also there was a nurses union affiliate included in that, I think it was Massachusetts. And so the idea of big bargaining teams, instead of five people at the table, let's have a hundred nurses at the table. Um, let's involve more people. Let's uh, really kind of give the membership more of a direct role in the negotiations themselves. Um, and one of the benefits of that is that one, scares the hell out of management. So that's always fun and it's also useful. Um, but it also, I think, really kind of shows people what the what it takes to actually um, to actually get the kinds of things that they want, uh, the level of work and commitment and ownership over making that happen. Um, and I think that one of the things that like is also a huge advantage of opening up the bargaining process is I've lost count of the number of people that really kind of had they understood the need for the union, but they ultimately thought that like, okay, well, this, you know, this manager isn't that bad of a guy, you know, he really has our best interests at heart, like this should be an easy process, like we're just going to talk and we're going to come to an agreement. And then I think that they realize when the mask comes off at the bargaining table, what the real relationship there is between, uh, like what the real relationship between labor and management is. And so it's a really eye-opening experience for a lot of workers to actually be exposed to this is what management actually thinks about me and about my role in the workplace. And so I think that one of the things that I often kind of say, there's, there's a kind of fear of that proposal kind of getting out there. And one of the things that I really kind of put to bargaining teams is every single thing that you propose, you can defend. Like, you can you can give this proposal to a person off the street and tell them exactly why it's necessary, why it's going to lead to, you know, better schools. So why be scared of owning that and making clear that taking on the mantle of we're fighting for better schools, better, you know, better workplaces, we're fighting for all of the things that the community should want. And I think that, you know, that can be extended to pretty much any workplace that we're the ones actually fighting for making this a better workplace, a better enterprise, a better newsroom, whatever, a better hospital. And so I think that instead of being scared about that kind of transparency, I think we should use it. And I think that James, again, like I really encourage folks uh, that are, you know, a little bit more involved in this work to take a look at Jane's report uh, from the UC Berkeley Labor Center on big bargaining and how to use that to build power. Yeah, I, I agree. And I've really enjoyed, um, I've really gotten a lot from those, uh, from those kind of reports. I think they're, um, you know, I think that they're really useful. And, and I think that there's, you know, you mentioned that there's a genuine kind of um, belief that closed bargaining might get the best results. And on our end, I think there's like an ideological belief that 
open bargaining is better because I think that we have a um, that that we have a commitment and we have a belief in the importance of and the good of transparency and democratic input and things like that. But th- there might be some you know maybe wizened older you know union heads right that maybe say that some of that is good to an extent but too much can be a bad thing and so they're so they and so they've got this ostensibly belief that has that they've that they would say comes from reality or something that you know a more closed process is going to result in in better contracts and and so I think that that report really is useful for people that are trying to push for more democracy and more um, more transparency in their unions. And which is which is, uh, you know, as I'm saying this, I want to underscore for the non-union folks in the audiences that unions are still a fundamentally transparent and democratic institutions, even the even the least of those are still much more democratic and transparent than any businesses or any workplace without a union. But, you know, some are some are better and more democratic and more transparent than others. And and like Adam said, we haven't shied away from that. We have had interviews with uh, the Unite All Workers for Democracy, the Reform Caucus and the UAW, and we support that. And we support, you know, movements for more transparency and democracy in unions that have less of it. But um but uh, uh, but yeah, is there anything that what what do you think when you hear you know people that that have kind of that that more hard edge or, or, or something that they would say comes from reality and, and practicability about the need for like closed bargaining? I think a lot of it is really kind of recalibrating an understanding of where our power comes from. And I think that Mm. there's become over the years a reliance on process, a reliance on the law, a reliance on, you know, how bargaining works in a technical sense um, and navigating that through kind of like the very well-trained bargaining team and that has the expertise and they know how to, you know, to navigate this process. And so it becomes a question of expertise kind of navigating this very bureaucratic process that I think that if you take a step back, pretty much every unionist is going to admit that process is rigged against us. And so I think that really it's a question of understanding that that process is rigged against us, no matter how well we navigate it, it is going to limit the outcomes that we're able to achieve. And so our best hope is of understanding where our power comes from is from an engaged rank and file and understanding that realistically, we're going to use the process when the process will help us get what we want. And we're going to bend or break the process when the process doesn't get us what we want. And we need to take a much more flexible, I think, approach to either pushing, um, I'll I'll leave it for legal reasons, I'll say leaving it at (laughs) pushing the law in the right direction um, to kind of make sure that ultimately the process is only as good as it serves the interests of the workers. And if if it's not serving the interests of the workers, then maybe we need to change that process. And so I think it's really just kind of recalibrating an understanding of um, where does our power ultimately come from? And if we understand that we're just managing, you know, we're managing the decline 
in the process we have right now, both in bargaining and in union organizing. Mm -hmm. We're managing decline. And so ultimately, what we have to look at is how do we make this process work for us? And the only way to do that is to draw on the only source of power that unions have, which is engaged workers. Um, and so I think that's really like the fundamental, one of the things that I recently put to a union um, local that's been having trouble in bargaining for a number of years against a really you know, aggressive employer is, and they're opting for um, a different approach to this contract is, the only way to change the outcomes is to change the approach. And I understand that it's risky, but at the same time, there are some hard limits on what you're ever going to be able to achieve if you keep doing the same thing over and over. Right. And so you're not going to get worse this way. And this is the only way to be able to get something much more transformative. And I know Jane is big on this because it's all about raising expectations for what you can achieve, but also putting some power behind that so you actually can achieve those expectations. Right. And that's, you know, that ties into one of the things that they're that the boss is going to say against a union is they're going to try to third party it. They're going to try to make it like uh, the union is something separate from you that does or doesn't do things for or to you. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what unions are, because unions are the membership. And this is something that that even sometimes union representatives can get wrong and they. They will third party themselves and they will see themselves as separate from the workers and as part of an organization that will service the workers. Um, but they're wrong because their ability to do anything for the workers, quote unquote, where does it come from? Where does management's willingness to give in to even union representatives that see themselves as separate from the workers where does that come from? It comes from the workers. It comes from the degree to which management fears worker power. And so, you know, even if there are union stewards or, or representatives out there that see themselves as a third party, I mean, they're just simply they're just simply wrong. All of their power comes from their membership, whether they or the membership know it or not. But the boss certainly does. And they don't want you to know it. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point that ultimately, you know, even with these kinds of approaches that are a little bit more disconnected from the rank and file, um, the the boss knows where, you know, where that power comes from, even when we forget it. That's exactly right. Uh, Connor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Adam, you had one thing that you wanted to plug before we went off the air. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, uh, I think it actually played in the news break, but today is a national march for voting rights. It's the anniversary of Dr. King's March on Washington for voting rights. Uh, and Jacob and myself will actually be participating in one here in Alabama, a virtual rally. Uh, so that we can make sure the labor movement perspective is included in this discussion on voting rights. So uh, it will be live streamed on uh, YouTube via the People for Democracy channel. And, uh, you know, so spaces are filled already for the actual session, but it will be available online. And, you know, send your, your luck to uh, Jacob and I that we do a good job representing our union brothers and sisters in this conversation. 
All right, Adam, thank you. And uh, and again, Connor, thank you so much. I, I have I've really enjoyed the last two uh, the last two times that we've and, and there's still a lot that 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 would be good to get to. And, and maybe we'll even get you on for, for a third month if you if you want to, <laughs> because I think that, you know, uh, some good things for people to think about would be like, OK, well, what if negotiations aren't going well what happens how do i authorize a strike why is a strike good because a strike is something that employers are going to say is bad for you and bad for the company and unions want to make you do it and that's bad and of course unions don't do that you decide whether or not you want to go on strike it'd be good to talk about enforcing the contract you've got a contract how does the enforcement of that actually Mm -hmm. happen and keeping the membership engaged and so there's still so so much just really kind of basic stuff that and and so maybe even if it's not next month we'll bring you on some other time to talk about that make sure that you follow him on twitter the house red follow strike wave on twitter at strike wave uh subscribe to their newsletter the strikewave.org you've been listening to the valley labor report thank you and we'll see you next week